Michael and Renee something, I don't know if you know this. Well, I think you probably figured it out by now. They coordinate all the music. They make sure that there's somebody here. Um, they always get their time cut short because of long announcements. And, uh, and I can relate to that. And, uh, and so I empathize with them as far as that's concerned. But it, it takes a lot of work to do that. And I just want to thank them for doing it. In addition to that, you know, they always get their time cut, cut short. So today we're going to make up for that a little bit because uh, Michael and Renee want to come and, um, and dedicate the, their children. Everybody? Okay. Well, okay, Andrew. Okay. So if you guys would come up here, everyone can see. And you can flip those cool lights on if you want. It's kind of dark up here. I, I hope. Is it dark in here? Oh, good. But anyway, Michael and they, they take care of all the music, and, and I appreciate that. And every week you don't realize how difficult it is making sure we've got, you know, David lined up and, and uh, Dave and everybody that does it. So anyway, I just want to thank them. But uh, also, it should come as no surprise, since God instituted uh, marriage and family, that God would have some very definite ideas and uh, suggestions in the form of commandments as far as what God uh, expects of us as a family. Now, what's interesting is he's got some very distinct roles in a roleless society that we live in, but God has some very distinct roles as far as uh, what a husband is all about. And he says that a husband should love his wife. The Bible says that a husband should love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He goes on to say, for no one ever, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So there's a very distinct role that we have as husbands in loving our wives and making sure that we nourish and we cherish them and we take care of them. But God also has something to say to wives as well. And in uh, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, we read these words. And uh, God has something to say to women, specifically to wives, and in this particular context to older women, as they are to instruct younger women, which would be... You, you, now, wait a minute. Now you jumped. You made that big leap to the older woman thing. And that uh, you're, you're one of those younger women. In fact, right here, it says right here, Renee. It got, it's in there. But uh, anyway, older women, more mature women, and that's the whole idea behind the discipleship thing that we're trying to get going. And by the way, you will hear from me this week. But uh, it says that they, need, they may encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husband, that the word of God would not be dishonored to be sensible, to be pure, uh, that you would be a lover of your husband and a lover of your children. And what's interesting in that particular context, in Ephesians it talks about how a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church, the highest form of love. In that context, it's talking about how a wife should love her husband as a friend, to be a friend to your husband, to be his best friend, to be a friend to your children so that they feel that they could come to you and spend time with you and talk to you and that, you know, when you hear a, a, a gal or, or, you know, a son or a daughter grow up to say, you know, my mom's my best friend, uh, that's accomplishing the role that God has given us as far as wives are concerned and moms. And so we need to recognize and understand that God has some very distinct ideas as to what family should be all about. And he also has some distinct ideas as far as children are concerned because he says that children are to obey their parents, plural, meaning that you both have authority over the children in your home. So the structure is very simple. God places man as the head of the family. His wife should be his friend, his complement, his companion. And both of you should have authority over your children and raising them and training them in the way they should go so that when they're old they won't depart from it. 
And that's your responsibility. Plus, that commandment is also one of the first commandments with the promise that children would obey their parents in the Lord so that it may be well with them and they will have a long and happy life because of it. So it all starts in the home and, uh, and that's what this is all about. So Michael and Renee have come today to uh, dedicate to themselves more than anything because this guy doesn't have a clue what's going on. And in fact, he, he gives me the same look that a lot of you give me all the time. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so that's... Buddy. Defensive tackle. Anyway, let's, let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for Andrew. We just want to thank you for this precious life that you've entrusted to Michael and Renee. God, we just pray that they will be uh, a husband and wife who obeys your commands and your principles, that they would love their child and children in this case, that they would train them in the way they should go, which is your way, so that when they're old, they'll continue to walk with you. God, we just pray that they will learn as they grow to be obedient to their parents because there's safety in that that they would respect them as authority and that that authority as they respect them in so doing they respect you. God, we just thank you for this family. We ask a special blessing on them as servants of yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, as many of you are aware, the uh, Winter Olympics came to a conclusion this past week in Nagano, Japan. And uh, in addition to the competition of the various events, one of the things that I enjoyed was the personal, the coverage of the personal experiences that each of the athletes had as they traveled to Japan or how they got there, basically. And I don't know if any of you watched some of the coverage, uh, but one of the things that really stood out in my mind and the thing that I enjoyed was when they would give you a background of one of the athletes and, you know, they would take you from where they have come from, the road that they traveled to get there. And uh, one particular athlete is uh, Peekaboo Street, who was an Olympic downhill um, uh, Super G uh, skier. And uh, she's a, a, quite a character. But what was fascinating to me was a study as they went back on her life. And they took us back a year ago to where she was in competition and she had crashed in a downhill event and they averaged about 80 miles an hour. So the only thing they've got is a helmet on. And uh, so even, you know, as you can imagine, she hurt herself quite severely and she uh, blew out her knee. And uh, what they did was, and the thing I liked about this coverage, they took us back to, they showed clips of that accident, and they showed her being taken to the hospital, they showed her in the hospital, they showed the diagnosis, they showed her going into the operating room, they showed the, some of the surgery, uh, they showed what she was going through, then they took her from surgery to rehab, and then they took us on this journey that took one year approximately to where she would go through the rehabilitation, to all the training, to all the exercising, to all the struggles that only an athlete can really appreciate if you've ever been injured and you know what the road, what the road is that lies ahead for you. And so anyway, they took her to that, to where actually she went with her coach to Nagano, Japan, uh, I forget, I think it was about six months ago, and she rode on his back down the course that she wanted to compete six months from then. She rode on his back because she was still in a cast, she, still had, she was still recovering from surgery, and she rode on his back because she wanted to get a feel for what the course was going to be like when she completed her rehabilitation. There was no question in her mind that she was going to do that. And then they, they, followed these particular, they followed all the rehab until finally a month before the Olympics and another event in Europe in January, she was on a Super G or a downhill course and she crashed again. 
And it was a chance to see whether all the rehab had paid off and if the knee would hold up. And it went from that to following her downhill run, which ended up being a gold medal effort. And so what I liked about that and what I appreciated about that, and she, they, she wasn't the only person that they did that to because they had talked about athletes from Sarajevo uh, that had gone through the war that was there and how we had just had an Olympics there not too long ago and the place was bombed and gutted and how the athletes were training there to one athlete who was in an accident and lost the use of one of his arms and how he came back. And so anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this. I enjoyed that because it helped put into proper context and give us an overall perspective of what was going on in the life of the athlete. So often all we see is this effort that's made as far as did they win a medal or didn't they win a medal. But you know, really, the, 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 the true story of competition and the true story of the context is what was going on behind the scenes. And it was important that, that I use it as an illustration because as I watched these athletes and their individual journeys on this road to the Olympics, I thought, you know, how often do we let Easter come and go without putting a proper biblical context to the events of Christ's arrest, um, his trial, his execution, and then his glorious resurrection? You know, so often is the case, we end up, okay, it's Easter now, let's hit you with this message. And it's out of context, not that it's not appropriate, but it tends to be out of context. And fortunately, since we ended the, our series last week, it gives me the, the perfect opportunity to take the next five weeks as we're together and to take a path or a journey on this journey of the path or the road to resurrection. And it will help put into context the events that took place to help us to identify with these human beings who saw some of the most incredible events that the world has ever seen to go on this emotional roller coaster ride as we will see as we go on this journey and to be able to appreciate what they saw in the context that led up to this most incredible event, the greatest event this world has ever seen, and that was the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to put it in context, so I hope that it makes more sense to you, and I hope that you can appreciate it as opposed to just an event that takes place in a moment of time without understanding all the background that goes along with it. So if you've got your Bibles, I would just ask that you turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look in Luke chapter 19 and stop on a critical point on this journey or this road to resurrection. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, we read these words. And he entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. It says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
In this passage, we see this text is probably considered the key passage in the whole entire Gospel of Luke. Without question, there's no one who argues that this particular verse, this verse in, in uh, verse 10, is the key verse in the whole Gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in this particular passage, we're going to be introduced to the Savior who seeks the lost. And it's going to be a fascinating look as we consider this remarkable event and the series of events that lead up to the arrest, the trial, uh, the execution, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible passage that you'll see, and I, ho and I hope that you appreciate it as I have come to appreciate it going through and taking a look at it. There's three things that we're going to look at as we go through this. And the first is the circumstances behind the encounter with Jesus. The circumstances behind the encounter with Jesus. First of all, as we go through this, it says in verse 1 that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was the presence of Jesus in the city of Jericho. And as we look at this in Luke 18.35, if you've got your Bibles open, it says that, uh, and it came about that as he was approaching Jericho, a certain blind man was begging by the side of the road. And he was begging and he implored and shouted out, shouted out to Jesus, Son of David, you know, heal me, save me. And Jesus healed this blind man as he was approaching Jericho, Jericho, the Bible says. And as he got to Jericho, the Bible says that he was just passing through. He had no intentions of staying, but he was passing through. And at the opening, we find that he's passing through. He's not intending to stay. He's not intending to stop. The Bible is very clear. He was just passing through. And uh, what's fascinating to me is that this is where he encounters Zacchaeus. Now, if you remember from our study in 2 Thessalonians, we had mentioned, and I'll mention again because it's going to be illustrated in this particular encounter, that everything that God does in our life is motivated by his love for people. Everything. And we're going to see that to be true as Jesus is passing through on his way, as he's going through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And what's even more fascinating as you consider all this, that God is motivated by his love. Now, don't forget that Jesus is on the road to resurrection but more importantly than that, there are some events that have to take place before the resurrection. And he had already explained to his disciples and those around him what events they would be. If you've got your Bibles, look at Luke 18, verse 31. He started to talk to his disciples, and again, for the umpteenth time, he explained to them what lay ahead. And he said this, and he took the twelve aside, and he said, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. He says, And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after that they have scourged him. And they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. It says, and, these, and they understood none of these things. And this, was, this saying was hidden from them. And they didn't comprehend it. The things that were being said. And you notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. And I need to tell you what's going to take place. And it was important for them to understand because they thought that Jesus was going to set up God's kingdom here on earth. They knew that he was Messiah. They knew that he was the savior of the nation of Israel. They knew he was the savior of the world. And they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that when they went into Jerusalem that Jesus was going to take over and clean up and they were going to take over. And that's what the constant argument was among the disciples. Hey, you know what? Which one of us is going to be in a place of authority? What are you going to be doing? What am I going to be doing? Which one of us is the greatest? How are we going to all fit into this whole program that Jesus is going to establish? And they thought that that's what was going to take place. And the context is important. And he explained to them, listen, before, before you get so confused, you need to understand something. But they didn't understand it. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus endured. He despised the shame of the cross. He endured the pain that he went through. Why? The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. 
Resurrection day is coming. But before that day, he would have to undergo and endure inhumane treatment by human beings. And he tried to get that across to them. But they didn't understand it. But we see the presence of Jesus in Jericho. Now what's fascinating about this, as he's passing through, he knows what lays ahead. He knows what he's going to have to endure. He knows what he's going to have to despise. And yet, what's fascinating about this is that Jesus still has time to reach out to one individual. Now, I don't know about you, but when you put that into context, what's amazing to me is this. I've got a problem, and I want to be honest with you. When I see trouble ahead in my life, when I go through difficult times, I have a tendency to become self-absorbed. You know what I'm saying? You got a problem with business, you got a problem with your, your, your business or employment, you have a problem with your finances, you have a problem with your marriage, you got a problem with whatever's going on in your life, you have a problem with your children. Whatever the problems are that you have, I don't know about you, but sometimes those problems can be so overwhelming that we become so absorbed with ourselves and our problems, we don't have time for anybody else. And what's fascinating to me about Jesus, he knew what he was going to have to endure, and yet here he was in great love and compassion, reaching out to one person as he's passing through on his road to his arrest, to his trial, to his execution, and ultimately to his resurrection. But he had the love and compassion to reach out. And he wasn't sidetracked by what was going on. He knew his purpose. And the Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. A second thing that stands out as we go through this says that there was a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. As we look at this, we see this man and we're introduced to him for the first time and, and God gives us some very cl a clear picture of what this man's priorities were all about. The Bible says that this man, his name was Zacchaeus. What's interesting as we go through this, and it's important to understand, is that God gives us a wealth of information to help us to understand exactly what's going on. Zacchaeus, his name means righteous one. His name means purity. Indicating that somewhere in his family line, somewhere downstream, there had to be a sensitivity to the things of God. There had to be awareness of who God was. His folks had to have a sensitivity to, to God. They named him righteous one. They named him pure. And uh, in the home that somehow or another honored God in its own way, Zacchaeus at some point decided later in life, you know, as we have these children up here today and you stop and you think, here's two parents that love God and want to do what's right before God and they want what's best for their children and they name their children in a way that would be pleasing to God and yet here's exactly what had taken place in Zacchaeus' life. His parents named him Righteous One. His parents named him Pure because he was going to live a life that was pleasing to God. And yet at some point in his life, Zacchaeus decided to go his own way. There was a way that seemed right to Zacchaeus, the Bible says, but in the end, it's always destruction. There's a way it seems right to man all the time, but in the end, always leads to destruction. His name was Zacchaeus. His name was Righteous One. His name was Pure. The Bible gives us an indication of the fact that Somewhere along the line, he sold out because we're told that he was a chief tax collector. A chief tax collector. He was a tax collector. His parents probably never dreamed that one day this righteous one, this pure son, would decide to become a tax collector. One of the most despised professions in all of the known world at that time. The man decided at some point Zacchaeus came to a crossroads in his life. And he was asked the question, which direction are you going to go from here? 
and he decided it was time to go this way instead of the way that was right before God. It was time to sell out his parents. It was time to sell out his history, his tradition, his religious background. It was time to sell it all out, and it was time to go for the gold, and it wasn't Olympic gold. He was going for the cash. And isn't it amazing how oftentimes that's true in each of our lives, that if you look back on your life, there's always a certain point where there's a crossroad that you have a decision to make. Am I going to do what's right before God, or am I going to do what's right in my own mind? Am I going to do what's right and go that path, even though it looks like a difficult path, and I'm going to do what's right before God, or am I going to compromise and do what I want to do for myself? I had mentioned one time, and it, was, and it just came to mind right now, about the friend of ours who was a, a Christian man, young man, who was engaged to a Christian woman. Both of them loved God. Both of them wanted to do what's right before the Lord. They were engaged to be married, and he called me and said, meet with me because i got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? This gal was a former Miss USA, beautiful woman, talented woman, and, and a woman that loved the Lord. And he said, i got to meet with you because I'm having a problem. I said, what's the problem? So we met. He said, well, I want to, after I'm done playing professional football, I want to go into ministry. I want to help college students. And I shared that with my fiance, and she said, there's no way. She wants to do that. He goes, I'm sorry, but that's not the direction I think God's leading me. That's not the talents that God has given me. That's not the direction that I think God wants me to go. And so he was struggling with this dilemma now. They were engaged. They were going to get married. And he just discovered before this that, hey, you know what? She doesn't want to go the same direction that I want to go, and I want to go the direction that God wants to go. And he said, what should I do? I always like that. What should I do? Okay, well, let's see if I'm going to determine the rest of your life for you right now <laughs> over an iced tea at Red Robin. You know? And, and it's like, hey, you know what? I, I'm not going to tell you anything, but I'm going to ask you a question. What is the greatest commandment? And he knew his Bible. And he said that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I said, so what's the problem? He gave me a look like sometimes a lot of people give me. Oh, man. You got to get right to it like that. Well, so what's the problem? Who do you love? Do you love God more or do you love your fiance more? It's a crossroads. You got to decide. You know, it's an incredible thing is to have a young man in his early 20s to recognize how true and profound that was. He called me not too long after that and said, we broke off our engagement. About two years went by, he got traded from the Rams to the Falcons, no, to Denver. He called me from Denver, and he said, this is about a year and a half later, he goes, hey, I got great news for you. I said, yeah, what is it? He says, you're not going to believe it. I always like that. You're not going to believe it. I always say, you know what, there's nothing ever going to surprise me, but sometimes I still get surprised anyway, but when God's involved in all of it, it's like, you know, I believe whatever God does. I said, what? And I already knew. I could have told him the rest of the story. But I wanted to hear him say it. He goes, I met this gal when I was in Louisiana, when I went back home, and I shared with her what I want to do, and that's exactly what she wants to do, and she loves the Lord, and I love the Lord, and we're going the same direction, and we're getting married next month, and I just remembered I needed a call and tell you this. What is he telling me? That God honors people that honor him. Why wouldn't I believe that? That God meets the desires of our heart, and that's what he did. And so here they were. They got married a month later. We got a postcard not too long ago. They had their first child, or they were expecting their first child uh, shortly. And uh, this guy's life was just radically, I mean, the guy's life was radically changed because he did what was right before God. Was it easy to break up? No, it's not easy to break up. Was it easy to make that decision? There was nothing easy about it. He loved her. He loved her, her family. They were all close. I mean, it was incredible. 
that he had to come to that point, but God honored him for doing that. Why did I bring this up? Because every one of us go at a time, come to a crossroads, and have to decide which direction we're going to go. And Zacchaeus came to that crossroad, and he said, I'm not going your way, God. I'm going my way, and I'm going to make a ton of money. And that's exactly what he decided to do. Can you imagine from that day forward, this tax collector whose name was pure and righteous. Now, there had to be a lot of, a lot of uh, laughter in the background. Oh, what's your name? Zacchaeus. <laughs> yeah, right. Righteous one. Yeah, okay. He was despised by the Jews. Not only did he collect money from the Jews, but he also collected money from the Gentiles. And, and, the, Gentile, and the Jews had nothing to do with the Gentiles. They were despised by the Jews. And here he was in the position collecting money from the Jews and from the Gentiles. It's amazing to me as we go through all this that this guy had a territory that was an incredible territory because to get to Jerusalem, you had to go through Jericho. Man, this was like, you know, uh, having... What? Um, to get to Vegas, you've got to go through Barstow. I don't know. But, but, you know, something like that, you know? You know, it's like owning a gas station in Barstow. You got what I'm trying to say? I mean, it was like cha-ching. This is a great location. You know, it's like having an In-N-Out burger on the 15th freeway and nowhere else to eat, like, for 300 miles. It, 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 was, it was great. And the guy had a great territory. And so because his territory was so good, he got to hire a bunch of other tax collectors to work for him because he needed the coverage of covering his territory. It was like a salesman that's got a, 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 just a plum territory. Have you ever been in that position? If you have, what they do is they'll hurry up and carve it up real quick for you. But anyway, if you ever have a, a territory like that where you've got, you're a sales manager that has all these salesmen and you're getting an override of all the taxes that they're making and you're collecting your own taxes plus you're getting an override of everybody who works for you, cha-ching, guess what? Oh, and he was wealthy. I guess. I mean, this guy was a tax collector. And he had people working underneath him, and he was a chief tax collector. It reminds me of a story that someone had shared with me not too long ago. It was about, I guess his local bar had a, had a standing bet that they would pay anyone $1,000 if they could squeeze lemon juice out of a lemon after their bartender had already squeezed it. And their bartender was, this guy was a stud. And he would take the lemon, he would squeeze the lemon, and then he would hand it to anybody who wanted to challenge him to see if they can get one more, just one more drop of lemon juice out of that lemon rind. And they had construction workers coming in there, they had longshoremen coming in there, they had athletes coming in there. Everybody and anybody that heard about this was going into this bar, man, to squeeze this lemon. And no one can do it. And one day, in through the bar, walks this little scrawny dude Little squirrely, scrawny guy. Picture him in your own mind, because I don't want to get too vivid here. Because <laughs> y'all start looking around and wonder if it's you. And it's not. So I'm going to finish it like this. So you picture this. All I picture is a pocket protector with about 16 pens. <laughs> and a little skinny guy. And he goes up to the bartender and says, I'll take you on. And the whole place, just as you can imagine, cracks up. They're just, everyone in the bar is laughing. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. So anyway, bar, bartender grabs a lemon, cuts it in half, squeezes it into the glass, half fills the glass up, and all it's got left is just this little rind, this little pulp of a rind. He hands it to this guy, and this little scrawny dude gets this thing, goes over to an empty glass, and goes like this. One, two, three, four, five, six drops. Everyone's amazed. The crowd is just silent. They can't believe it. And they ask this guy, so what do you do? Are you an athlete? Are you a construction worker? Are you a longshoreman? What do you do? And he goes, no, I work for the IRS. 
Can't we all just relate to that, all you people working on your taxes right now? Hey, if there was anyone that could squeeze another drop out of a taxpayer, it was this tax collector named Zacchaeus. And it says that he was rich. He made his profession pay. And you know how he made his profession pay? If you were a widow and you couldn't pay your taxes, he kicked you out of your house and he took it for himself. If you were someone that was injured and you couldn't go out to work and make a living for your family and you owned property, but you couldn't pay your taxes, he said, too bad, and he took your land. That's how this man made a living. He took that which didn't belong to him because he was in a position to do it. He only had to pay Rome so much money and whatever he got over and above that was his. And as a result, he was wealthy. He had extreme wealth. But you know what's fascinating about his wealth? His wealth left him empty. There was something missing in his life. He had all the stuff that you can buy, and yet there was something missing in his life. And the Bible over and over again tells us stories of people that had everything the world had to offer and had nothing and something was missing in their life. Just prior to this event, Jesus came across what we know as the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And Jesus said, you've got to obey the commandments. He said, I've done all that. He says, then what you've got to do is you've got to sell everything and come and follow me. And the Bible says the man was very wealthy and he put his head down and he turned and he walked away at the crossroads of his life where he wanted to know what he had to do to get into heaven and Jesus told him what was holding him back. He was given a position or an opportunity to be able to make a decision of what direction he would go. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. And even though there's something missing in my life and even though I don't know what's going to happen to me after I die, I'm going to hang on to all my stuff because that's all I have because if I give that up and turn to you, I'll have nothing left but you. And he turned and walked away. See, Zacchaeus had something missing in his life. And he knew that all the money didn't do it, and the position didn't do it, and the chief tax collecting position didn't do it. And he had something missing in his life. And this renegade Zacchaeus, in the eyes of the Jewish people, and despised in the eyes of everyone, was loved by Jesus Christ. And Jesus, his presence there indicates that. And look at the encounter that takes place. The purpose behind all of it, which is fascinating. What did he want? Zacchaeus says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. Let that soak in for a second. He wanted to see who Jesus was. I've got everything this world has to offer, and I have nothing. And he heard about this man, Jesus. And he heard he was a man that was sent from God. He heard he was a man who said that he could forgive sin. He was a man that went and ate with sinners and spent time with sinners. He was a man that wasn't afraid to touch lepers. He wasn't afraid to be associated with all the dregs of life. He was a man that sought this man out. He heard about Jesus. He heard that he was a man who did miracles. He was a man that forgave sin. He heard about him. And you know what he wanted to do? Zacchaeus wanted to check him out for himself. We live in a world, people hear about Jesus all the time. 
Yeah, Easter comes. Uh, what's it about? Uh, Jesus ra ra raised from the dead. We live in a world that hears about Jesus all the time. But there's a big difference between hearing about Jesus and wanting to seek Him out for yourself. But we're ashamed. We're afraid. We've come to a crossroad and God's making it known in our heart that something's missing in our life. And He's saying to you, you need to seek out for yourself who this Jesus is. And that's what Zacchaeus did. He sought Him out for himself. And there was a plan that he had. And Zacchaeus was looking at it saying, hey, you know what? I need to seek Him out. I need to know for sure, does he love sinners? Does he forgive sin? Can he offer me eternal life? Can he tell me for sure that when I die, that I'm going to heaven? I need to know. And Zacchaeus came up with a plan. Says he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not. Why? Because the crowds were too big. Have you ever been to Disneyland during the parades? And you're short? Not a good position to be in. If you're short enough, you can crawl through or underneath everybody's legs and get out to the front. You know, but if you've ever been in the back in a parade and you're standing in the back of the line and you're short, you don't see anything. And so Zacchaeus had a problem. He was a short guy. So he came up with a plan. And the plan is incredible to me if you think about it in the context of what's going on. Look what it says. He says he couldn't see because of the crowd, so he ran ahead and he climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was just coming that way, just passing through. Notice two things that he said. That he was a short guy, so he ran ahead. First of all, you've got to understand something. No dignified tax collector, chief tax collector in that culture would ever run anywhere. It was beneath them. It was humiliating to run somewhere. So here this guy was running down the street to get to a tree to climb a tree. Now that may not seem like much to you, but if you know anything about a sycamore tree, it's a pretty long climb just to get up to the first branch. And they have slippery bark. So I want you to picture in your mind this chief tax collector, this wealthy guy, this dignified politician, so to speak, running down the street, climbing a tree, climbing up, sliding down, climbing up, sliding down, running and jumping, and you know, and hoping, and he wished he had Velcro, but he never heard of it. And, um, <laughs> and he can't get up in the tree. And finally, after all this effort, the guy climbs up into a tree, and everybody that's in line is pointing and laughing, look at that idiot up in a tree. What's so important about this? Look, look with me in uh, Luke chapter 18 for a second. Look at Luke 18, starting with verse 9. This is just prior to this event. It says, And Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I just thank you that I'm not like other people, all these swindlers and unjust and adulterers or even like this tax gatherer right next to me. I fast twice a week. I pay all the tithes that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I'll tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Why is that so important? Because if you are seeking who Jesus is, you will have to humble yourself in order to do so. There are those who are ashamed to say, uh, what you do this weekend? Um, I, went to, I went to church. You what? I went to church. 
Because I'm seeking to know who Jesus is. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard how many of those conversations take place on a job site. What did you do? Oh, man, I had a party, man. That was great. It was awesome, man. It was great, man. We had a great time. Oh, my head. Oh, I got a hangover. Oh, really? See, because we are ashamed to humble ourselves to say, you know what? I went to a Bible study because I'm seeking to know who Jesus is. I need to know who God is. I need to know what purpose he has in my life. I need to know when I die if I'm going to heaven or not. I need to find out. And he has put this burden on my heart and I want to find out. No, we're ashamed to be humble. And yet, you know what? If you're self-righteous, God says, there's no place in the kingdom of God for you. But if you're humble, then he will exalt you in the proper time. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, we had sexual sin and committed adultery and killed her husband. Says in Psalm 51, he says, the sacrifices that are pleasing to God, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. You will never turn down. A cry of a person that says that I'm wrong before God and God forgive me. The Bible says that God will never turn a deaf ear on that prayer. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and, a broken and contrite heart. God will never despise. And so as we look at all this, we see a man, who, and Jesus said, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall in no way enter in. Isn't that the picture of Zacchaeus at this point? A little child running along the Disneyland parade trying to get a view in the front row so he can check out the parade for himself. A little man, Zacchaeus, running down the street, embarrassing himself in front of everybody climbing a tree and sliding up and down and finally getting up to the one branch where he can see above everybody else. And he humbled himself before the world so that he could get to know God on a personal basis. That's the picture that we have going on here. That's what we see. So here we see in these first few verses the presence of Jesus on the road to his arrest, his crucifixion, and ultimately the, his resurrection. Yet he's seeking out a man whose priorities in life were totally screwed up. The man wanted nothing to do with God, and yet Jesus sought him out. He was a man who was chosen career, the money, his possessions, all left him empty, all left him looking for something in life, and it led to a purpose which was to see who Jesus was. And yet he was hindered by a problem he couldn't see because of the crowd. He was a short guy. He was also probably a proud man, and pride held him back. And yet he laid aside his pride and he became humble. Humble to the point where he didn't care what anybody else had to say because nothing was more important in his life to find out who Jesus was. And his plan led him to humiliate himself and run in front of the crowd and jump up into a tree. And all this time Zacchaeus is thinking he was seeking Jesus, but in reality, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was seeking him. Isn't that fascinating? You know, I was thinking the other day, you can't really appreciate being saved until you know you're lost. You ever think of that? You can't appreciate being saved until you know you're lost. I mean, we read, or I, I remember when I was a kid growing up, that there was a big search for a couple of guys that were friends of ours. And, uh, you know, when they finally found them, they were as amazed as anybody. Anyone was looking for them because they didn't know that they were lost. They were just out having a good time. and lost track of time, and they were having a great time. So the police showed up. They finally found them, took them home. They didn't even know they were lost. You know, those two snowboarders a couple weeks ago that got lost in the mountains knew they were lost. And I'll tell you what, when they saw the rescuers, they were real glad to see the rescuers. The rescuers were seeking and, and searching for them. But what's amazing to me is that God seeks us out, and sometimes we don't even have a clue that we're lost. 
but he still seeks us out anyway. And just so that you know, and I'll tell you very clearly, the Bible says you're lost and so am I. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisee who thought I'm doing all the religious things right was just as lost as the tax gatherer who was ripping people off because pride in his heart said, God, you know what? I don't need to be forgiven by you because I've done nothing wrong. I talk to good people all the time like that. I don't need forgiveness. I haven't done anything wrong. The Bible says, yes, you have. You've sinned. You fall short of the glory of God. You make mistakes. You're not perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. When sin entered the world through Adam, sin came into the world and death as a result of it. The fact that you die as a human being is a, is a manifestation or a consequence of the fact that you are lost and dead before God. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son of the world to, to, uh, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he, said, and he didn't send Christ into the world to judge it or condemn it because the world has been condemned already. We are all lost. And the only way you appreciate being saved is to know how lost you truly are. And Zacchaeus didn't have a problem with that concept. And so here he was in God's plan, preordained at the right place in the right time. And as we see this thing here, notice the challenge which comes from Jesus. In verse 5. He says, when Jesus reached the spot. Now, I don't know... Don't read through this too quickly because this is amazing to me. When Jesus reached the spot, what spot? The spot that was preordained from the beginning of the creation of this world. The Bible says that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. When he reached that spot, that preordained spot of God, when he reached that spot, that place, Jesus calls him by name. Could you imagine what was going through Zacchaeus' mind? He knows my name. Can you imagine what the crowd was thinking? He knows his name. Do you realize that what the Bible says is true? That God knows everything about you and me. He knows when you got up this morning. He knows what your journey was like getting here. It's pretty scary, huh? He knows the conversations that you had. He knows the thoughts that you have. He knows right now what you're thinking. He knows that some of you are thinking that's the dumbest thing you ever heard, that God can know everything. He knows that. He knows right now, if you're really paying attention, or you're just kind of frozen, <laughs> and that you got it down from years of training, that you're just able to sit and look like you're looking, but He knows you're a zombie. <laughs> he knows whether you're listening. He knows whether you're writing down your to-do list for the week. He knows whether you're even paying attention, and you don't even know it because you didn't hear it because you're not. <laughs> but he knows it. He knows everything. And he knows whether you're here to get serious with God or if you're playing a religion game. He knows whether you're here to see who Jesus really is or you're here to please the person that invited you or the person that wants you to go to church with them or the person that drags you into a situation like this and then they treat you nice if you come and if you don't come, they don't treat you as nice as if you do come. He knows all that stuff. And he called him by name. 
He knew his name and he knew his heart. And he knows yours too. Wow. Look at the second thing he does. He commands him to come down. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Follow me. He calls him. He chooses him. We just went through a whole study that, you know, the disciples always knew what it meant to be called by God. It says, you, come follow me. Today, he may be calling you to follow him. And you're going to have to go through that crossroad decision. Am I going to follow him or not follow him? Am I going to be like the rich young ruler who wanted to follow him, but my stuff's going to hold me back? Or am I going to be like a lot of other people? Well, hey, that's good that you are, but I'm not. And, I, you know, and I'm not into humbling myself. And I'm not into crying out to God. And I'm going to be able to do it on my own. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made person. I don't need any help. No one's ever given me any help. And I don't need help from God now. There's a crossroad. It says, you, come, follow me. And when God speaks, you have a choice. Either to reject him and his leadership and his direction, or accept him and follow him. What are you going to do? It's your choice. He gives you that choice. But he yelled up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come and follow me. You know, Jesus offered the same invitation to a man one day who said this, Lord, I want to follow you, and I will follow you, but I don't really want to do it today. I want to wait till my parents die, and after I bury them, then I'll come after you. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? Let the dead bury the dead, but you come follow me. But he didn't. I don't know what you're going to do, but he's commanding you to do the same thing. He's commanding you. Look at it says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. You know what that command did? It communicated to Zacchaeus, you know what? I love you. Despite what everybody else says about you, and despite what you feel about yourself, I love you. And I want you to come down, and I want you to follow me. Because I'm going to your house today, and we're going to have dinner together. And we're going to have a nice long talk. Man, well, what happened? Well, shouldn't be too surprising. But sometimes it is surprising because, you know, Jesus offers the same invitation every day to any one of us that, it's, that he extends the invitation to. Some say, now, I'm not doing it. And others say, hey, you know what? I'll be right there. And I can just picture Zacchaeus jumping out of the tree. At this point, he could have cared less what anybody thought. He was already humiliated before the crowd. It didn't matter what anybody said. Jesus knew him by name. And so he came down out of the tree. Why? He responded to the invitation. And look what it says. And he welcomed him gladly. Welcome him means to receive him. He received him gladly. To receive gladly was with great joy, with exceeding joy. He jumped down out of the tree, he ran over to him, and he received him gladly. That's the response. There was rejoicing. It was spontaneous emotion that was seen after a victory. It's a kind of spontaneous emotion that you see after somebody wins a gold medal. You see the women's Olympic team, the hockey team, and they all run out in the middle of the ice rink, and they all jump on each other, and they're throwing gloves all over, they're jumping up and down, they're diving on each other, and they're receiving one another gladly with great rejoicing and spontaneity. And they're jumping on each other, or somebody at the end of a gold medal run or Olympic performance, and you see them just throw their fist in the air and go, yes, 
I did it. After all this, I did it. What he's saying was, hey, God, you did it, and I want to receive you gladly, and I want to invite you into my life. To as many as received him, to them he gave the privilege to be called a child of God, to those who believe in his name, and he received him gladly. There is no way in the world that a human being who knows he's lost cannot be overjoyed when he's found by someone looking for him. We have a world filled with people that have no joy in their life because supposedly they've been forgiven by God and have entered into a relationship with Christ. And you know what? There's no joy in their life. I've got to question that. If you know you're lost and you see a rescuer coming, you can't help but break into spontaneous joy. If you know you're lost and God says, I forgive you if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can't help but jump up and kick your feet together and say, man, I don't know what this is all about, but thank you, Lord, for forgiving me because I don't even deserve it. There's joy in forgiveness. There's joy in being reconciled to the God who made you. There's joy in knowing that when you die that you're going to heaven. There's joy in knowing that God has forgiven you of your past and he doesn't hold any of it against you. There's joy in a relationship, a living, breathing, walking, everyday relationship with God. And if you have that relationship, you need to shout for joy a little more. You need to say thank you and praise him for it. Zacchaeus did. What a wonderful picture of what it means to be forgiven. And yet on the other hand, look at this. And everybody was happy for Zacchaeus. Oh wait, no they're not. And the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Isn't that the way self-righteous people are when a sinner comes to God and asks for forgiveness? Oh yeah, we'll see. Let's watch. It's not real. They're just blowing smoke. They're making it up. There's always the cynics, the skeptics, who stand back and say, hey, we're not happy for that guy. And they may have been not happy for the guy for a lot of reasons. That guy kicked our mother out of her house. That guy took my business. That guy took my land. You know, I'm not happy for him that God would forgive him. That person murdered three girls. That person's in prison. That person raped and, and, and murdered and mutilated an individual. And yet you're going to tell me that that person who's in prison accepts Jesus Christ and they're going to be in heaven because they believe in Christ even after all the heinous things that they've done in the world? And the Bible says, exactly. And the world says, I don't like that. God says, well, you don't understand it. Because just because that person's in prison for doing what they did, you're just as guilty as, as anything before me for doing what you do. Maybe the laws of this land don't throw you into jail, but the laws of God say you are guilty. When a person receives Christ, it doesn't matter how guilty they are, they're still guilty before God. And the world looked at him and said, how can God forgive a tax gatherer and I say this, the same way he could forgive a self-righteous Pharisee that stood on the corner and said, how could God forgive that person? The same way that God can forgive you if you humble yourself before God and recognize you're lost and you have a need to be saved. Because it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one would ever boast or brag in heaven that I earned my way. That's the same way God saves all of us. It's by his grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. Isn't that fascinating as you look at this? You know, God has changed some of the most miserable people in the world and brought them to himself. And I know because I'm one of them. Let's close on this because this ties it all together. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, he said to the Lord, 
while everyone is mumbling and grumbling and complaining about how Jesus would go into the house of a tax gatherer, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Isn't that awesome? You know what he's saying? I recognize my guilt. Saying, not if I've cheated people, in the Greek it means if and since it is so. If I've cheated people, and since I have cheated people, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to give half of my possessions back, and I'm going to give to people four times that which I've taken from them. Now what's fascinating to me is this. That means that somewhere in the back of Zacchaeus' mind and his heart, he had an understanding of the laws of God. Maybe it goes all the way back to his family, to his childhood, to understanding who God is and to the laws of God. Because how would he have known what God required of people who were guilty before God? And so he knew that. He understood that. But what's fascinating is this. The law required no more than the original amount plus 20%. According to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5, the only time God ever required four times the amount that was taken was when an individual took something from another person that equaled everything that they owned. You know what he recognized and he confessed before God? There have been people in my life that I have taken from them everything that they own. And I realize that you want me to restore back to them four times what I took. You know, repentance isn't talked much about in our culture today. But let me just tell you something. A person that comes into a genuine relationship with God knows what it means to repent and to make right in the areas where they have done wrong. It is a natural conclusion of entering to a relationship with God. God convicts us of our sin, His righteousness and judgment, and we're aware that we're guilty before God. And Zacchaeus said, I'm guilty before you, I know what I've done, and now it's time to make it up. You know, we live in a world of easy testimonials. Zacchaeus didn't come to the door and say, I just want to tell you that Jesus set me free from sin. He forgave me. He didn't do that. The greatest testimony of a changed life is a changed life. The greatest testimony of a person that comes in a relationship with God isn't someone who just says it, but their life indicates it's true. They change. Their activities change. The stuff they do changes. They're not hanging anymore with the same people. They're not drinking and partying on the weekdays while they're going to church on Sundays. They're not using God's name in vain on the locker room or on a football field or baseball field or at a job site, and then they come to Bible study on a weeknight. They're not people that are living a dual existence. People who have come into a relationship with God are changed 24 hours a day, seven days a year, every day of our life. It's too easy to say it with our mouth. But the world's looking for our actions because they speak louder than our words. Is there a time to speak up? Absolutely. We need to let people know why we're different. Man, what happened to you this weekend? You don't want to go with us this week. Hey, you know what? I sought to see who Jesus was, and I found out, and I invited him into my life, and my life is different now because of it. And there's change. You've got to ask yourself this question. If you say and you tell me you're a Christian, but there's no joy in your relationship with God, and there's no change in your behavior before you became a Christian until after you become a Christian, then I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, examine yourself, to see if you really are a Christian by God's definition. You're not a Christian because you come to church. You're not a Christian because you read your Bible. You're not a Christian because you go to Bible study. And you're not even a Christian because you give up stuff in life. You are a Christian because you believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and in Him alone. That's how a person becomes a Christian. And look at Jesus' response, and we'll close on this. He says this, Today, salvation has come to this house. 
Why? Because there was evidence what God knew, what Christ knew about the heart of Zacchaeus, the world then saw as well. Today, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because Zacchaeus humbled himself before God, acknowledged he was a sinner before God, humiliated himself in front of the rest of the world to find out who Jesus was. When Jesus said, you come and follow me, Zacchaeus immediately left everything and followed him and received him gladly. And his life changed as a result. And Jesus affirmed the change in his life by saying, today this man is saved from the judgment of God for all of his sins, past, present, and future. Today salvation has come to this man's house, not because of anything that he did, but because he trusted in Jesus Christ. And it's evident by the change in his heart. Today, salvation has come to this man's house. And all of this took place on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus would be arrested, where he would be tried, where he would be crucified, and ultimately where he will be resurrected. That's the context of what's going on. God loves you and he has sought you out and he's seeking to save that which was lost. And you have a responsibility either to accept him and embrace him or you will be held accountable for the fact that you have rejected him and you have walked away from his love. What are you going to do as far as Jesus is concerned? I would beg you to consider what he says. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He wants you to know and he wants you to know today. Father, we just thank you for your word. And I just pray for anyone that's here today, if they want to get this right and clear with God, that they would just pray a simple prayer. God, God, you already know their heart. You know whether they're serious about you or not. You know whether they're just playing a game and they're saying the words with their hearts far from you. But for those who are here and listening to these words and they're humble before you and they're seeking out forgiveness, you tell us that the sacrifices of yours are a broken and contrite heart and that you will never despise that. If you're here today and you don't know what will happen when you die and you need forgiveness by God, just pray a simple prayer. God, save me for I'm a sinner. I'm lost and don't even realize it to the degree that I probably am. But like Zacchaeus, I want to humble myself before you. I want to fall at your feet and ask for your mercy. Forgive me for I'm a sinner. And I just pray that Jesus Christ would come into my life right now. That he would forgive me of my sins that you accept me for who I am. And I just thank you because of your word that what you say is true. And I receive him gladly today and I look forward to what he'll do in my life from this day forward. Father, we just pray for those who maybe have decided that for the first time, that you will surround them with people who love them, that care for them and want to help establish them in their faith. God, we just love you that you love us that you've demonstrated this love, and yet while we were still rebellious towards you, you sent Christ to die for us. Oh, what a wonderful salvation that is. And we just thank you that Jesus Christ is our Lord and is our Savior, and he seeks to save that which was lost. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.